Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, everybody. We're back for another week, another episode. We certainly are. And before we launch into it, but you've got a special uh, announcement, Bethan. <laughs> I can't I think do. of the right word. I was like, is it an announcement or is it something else? It's not else? really an announcement, but she, hopefully she's listening um, as happy birthday Gemma and if you're listening on the release day of this episode it's your birthday today which is exciting so um Gemma's son Ben got in touch with us and asked us to give her a little birthday shout out um she's one of our listeners who we've chatted to lots and we love having you as a listener Gemma so thank you very much and happy birthday have a fantastic day Okay, um, so before we get into this week's episode, let's take a moment to thank our newest Patreon supporters and, of course, our older Patreon supporters, all of them. Uh, but these the are old the people, ones. The old ones. <laughs> um, I'm really not with it this morning. You're uh, not, are you? I'm not. I'm really not. But thank you to our existing patrons as well as our new patrons That's and the what, newest where I was of coming whom. From. Aww. newest of whom are. Are you going to say their names or would you like me to? Uh, I think you better do it. <laughs> We've got Lara Francis. Georgina Hogg, Kira Serena, Goose AMC, Sally Rose, Helen Ashford, Sarah Condello, Leanne Kirkham, Carol Brown, Bianca Leonard, Jordan, Ben J 1AM, Rebecca Karev, and Laura Franks. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you to each and every one of you and to our existing supporters too. If you would like to join these people, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. There's a whole multitude of bonus content waiting for you right now. This week, we're heading once again to Liverpool, everyone's favourite vibrant maritime city in the northwest of England, as we take a good look at the meteoric rise and devastating fall of arguably one of the most notorious and successful criminals in UK history. An unassuming and highly intelligent, yet ruthless, drugs kingpin who came from humble beginnings and went on to make so much money from the narcotics industry that he is the only UK gangster to have ever made it onto the Sunday Times rich list. Oh my gosh, that's absolutely mad. I mean, that's an accolade, really. I would say there's probably... Annoyingly. Yeah, exactly. I I don't want to kind of big him up, but I would say there's actually probably quite a lot of gangsters and people who have made money through ill-gotten gains are on that list. We just don't know it. So Curtis Warren's exact level of wealth at the absolute peak of his criminal career is up for debate, mainly because the lion's share of his income was, of course, from illegitimate gains and therefore undeclared. However, we do know that he had a legitimate portfolio as a property developer that was worth around £40 million. And it's been estimated by credible sources that his total personal net worth may have in fact landed anywhere between £200 and £300 million. This is just serious, serious money. I'd just love it if someone gave me £1 million. Well, you wouldn't want it from ill-gotten drug gains, would you? Would you? Of course not, Mark. (laughs) No, I wouldn't because I'd feel like I was looking over my shoulder all the time and I wouldn't feel like it. I'd feel like it was dirty money. I'd feel like it had blood on it because you know that somewhere along the line someone will die from what you've Mm. sold or distributed. But I, even just like a hundred thousand, if anybody out there just wants to give me a hundred thousand, not even a million. I don't think that's going to happen. I'd be very grateful. I don't think that's going to happen, Bethan. (laughs) Um, you are right, though. I mean, we, we're kind of, you know, joking aside, uh, when we look at the origins of, of this money, it's come from large scale cocaine importation and then distribution within the UK, 
which will have absolutely devastated whole communities. And I was reading some statistics recently about cocaine use in the UK, and it's it's the highest at the highest level it's ever been at, and the number of deaths from cocaine have risen massively in the last ten years. So yeah, it's um you would absolutely have blood on your hands if you were involved in any of that. So what was it that made Curtis Warren so successful? What set him apart from the literally hundreds of poverty-stricken gangster wannabes who grew up alongside him? How was Curtis Warren ever given the opportunity to sit down face-to-face with the heads of the notorious Colombian Cali cartel and be the first British gangster to smuggle staggering amounts of product into the country on their behalf? To answer that question, we need to go back in time. To understand how Curtis Warren made such a meteoric rise to the top, we need to understand where he came from, what he was like, and what it was that set him apart as the master criminal he proved himself to be. Our story begins in Toxteth, an inner city area of Liverpool in the county of Merseyside. Toxteth is a widely familiar area of the city for reasons both good and bad. It is known for its diverse history and cultural significance. Historically speaking, the city of Liverpool was an area of booming economic and industrial growth during the 19th and early 20th centuries, when its geographically advantageous location on the northwest coast facing directly towards the Americas saw it prosper enormously as an important maritime trade port. However, the city's success was relatively short-lived. Two world wars in relatively quick succession saw the entire region suffer immeasurably as the conflict hindered trade and business drew almost to a complete halt, leading to significant economic and urban decline. As a result, the Toxteth area went from a thriving hub of music and multiculturalism to a deprived and depressed slum, leading to social challenges, crime and urban decay. The neighbourhood gained notoriety in the early 80s due to the Toxteth riots, which were triggered by long-standing social and economic issues, including high unemployment, racial tensions and perceived police injustices, which culminated in widespread civil unrest and protests in the Toxteth area of Liverpool. This unrest progressed to full-blown riots which lasted for several days, and the violence resulted in injuries to both civilians and police officers, as well as substantial damage to buildings and infrastructure in the Toxteth area. This event forever cemented Toxteth's negative reputation that it still holds to this day. And, I, you know, I don't want to kind of do it down massively. I don't know the area firsthand. I have been there quite recently, drove through it, and it's... You know, there is a real sense of community there at the same time as there being the negative aspects that you get in an area like that. So, you know, for anybody that does know it or does live there or has first-hand experience of it, yeah, I'm sure that there are absolutely good things as well as bad things. I think any area can be like that. Any part of a country can have history that then it just becomes known for. So it would be really interesting if we do have any listeners who live there who can say, actually, we now it's you know it's part of our culture it's part of our history but we don't constantly think about it or actually the opposite do you know what that kind of marked it forever yeah it would be really interesting to know yeah amid all of this chaos and strife curtis francis warren was born on the 31st of may in 1963 at home in the granby district of toxteth young curtis was the second of the warren children born and named after his father Curtis Aloysius Warren, a Jamaican-born sailor with the Norwegian Merchant Navy. 
During one of Curtis Warren Sr.'s multiple visits to the famous Liverpool docks in the late 50s, he met and married Sylvia Chantra, the half-Spaniard daughter of a local shipyard owner. The couple settled down in Liverpool, making Toxteth their home. They had their first child not long afterwards, a boy that they named Raymond, and a couple of years later they welcomed their second son into the world, Curtis Francis Warren. I'm a bit disappointed that you didn't do a Spanish accent on It's not happening. Oh, please. No, (laughs) Ramon. I could do a French, Ramon. No, No, because it's it's not French. It's not French. For Curtis Sr., being a merchant sailor meant long absences away from home, and this meant that his two sons would often go months at a time without seeing their dad. The Warren children were raised almost exclusively by their mother, and as Liverpool sank deeper into a long and depressing economic downturn, the Warren family were plagued by poverty and hardship. Not much is known about young Curtis's early childhood, but we do know that at the age of 11, he decided that school was no longer for him and dropped out. At the time, the city was in the very peak of its economic turmoil, having still not yet fully recovered from the Second World War. And it was around this time that the first sign of illegal drugs, namely marijuana from the Caribbean and the Americas, began to creep in via Liverpool's famous docks. Naturally, the city's criminals were quick to recognise the drug's earning potential and began building an illicit drugs industry that would rapidly become worth countless fortunes, the like of which had never been seen before at that time. Cocaine began to hit the coast in large quantities sometime later, and it was all go from there. The drug trade became astronomically big and terrifyingly competitive. As demand for narcotics soared in the UK, small fortunes were made essentially overnight. Young Curtis Warren would occasionally see once humble and poor gangsters from his estate, whom he'd known all of his life, suddenly transform into a vision of wealth and opulence, dressed to the nines and cruising through his deprived neighbourhood in brand new gleaming luxury cars. Sights like this were hugely inspiring for Warren. As an impressionable youngster from a poor family trying to survive in a poverty-stricken estate, he wanted a piece of the action. Everybody did. Who wouldn't? This really reminds me um, of, and I can't remember her name, but um, what was her name? Linda somebody. Linda Calvey, yeah. Yes, and you think of like where she saw people, you know, she saw people in their nice cars with their fur coats and was just like, I want that. That's what I need. That's me. That is me. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that. And that kind of reminds me of this. Of course, you're sat there possibly not having eaten a proper meal for a couple of days or watching your mum go without so that you can have your dinner or something really, really poignant for that little child. And then he sees somebody, well, not necessarily a child even, but he'd see somebody he's known all his life and suddenly they've got all this. Of course he's going to want that. Yeah, it's all, all... I'm not saying it's okay, but I can totally understand where this came from. Yeah, it's all he's going to know. And if you think his dad's absent for long periods of time, so there's not necessarily a father figure in his life, a male role model to look up to. So he's going to turn to... So these will become those role models. They will, absolutely. Um, But yeah, it's um, a really interesting book. I think it was called The Black Widow, wasn't it? Linda Calvey's book. That was it, yeah. Yeah, we read that for Patreon Book Club. Great book. Um, Curtis Warren's criminal career started around 1975 as nothing more than common delinquency. He began committing petty crimes like pickpocketing and minor theft and became known to the police almost immediately after being arrested several times. 
The youngster would purposely allow himself to be exploited by older criminals by offering to climb through small windows that they themselves were too big to squeeze through in order to carry out burglaries. Young Curtis did this because he wanted to win favour amongst the city's criminals so that they would accept him and take him under their wings. So, you know, it really is uh, him looking up to them as role models, as a father figure. And quite cleverly getting himself in, in with them as well. Yeah, yeah, because he knows that that's the way into their world. And if he wants to be rich, powerful, successful like them, then he needs to ingratiate himself within their gangs, within their community. As time went on, Curtis Warren's criminal activity only increased and intensified in severity. At the age of 13, he was arrested for stealing a car. The police pulled him over when they drove past a car being driven erratically and realised that the driver was barely tall enough to see over the steering wheel. So, I mean, 13 years old, he's stealing cars and... It's not funny because how dangerous, but at the same same time, that's quite a comical It is comical, yeah. And you can just imagine the police thinking, oh God, you know, we've got a fucking 13-year-old that not only is stealing cars, but he's also able to drive them, albeit quite erratically. Probably because he couldn't see where he was going. Well, it probably didn't help, yeah. At age 18, Warren was sent to Borstal after he viciously attacked and injured two police officers who were trying to detain him. Then, at the age of 19, he was arrested for trying to rob a sex worker and her wealthy client as they interacted in the man's car. This little stunt landed Warren with his first stint in adult prison and he was sentenced to two years. Interestingly, very few people who have ever met Curtis Warren personally have anything bad to say about him. He was described as a confident, friendly and happy-go-lucky character who was always smiling. Even the police officers who were constantly on his tail weren't immune to his charm. Years later, many of them would recall how much of an annoying and cocky, yet also strangely charming and kind-hearted kid he really was. In fact, it was his cheeky and roguish personality that earned him his nickname. Curtis Cocky Warren. Cocky as in Cocky Watchman, which is Scouse slang for a dodgy caretaker of sorts. However, despite his reputation as a little scallywag and unlike many other of the city's scoundrels, Curtis Warren had something that the others didn't. Intelligence. He had an almost freakishly good memory and he had a naturally sharp eye for business opportunities. He adored money to the point of obsession and knew exactly how to get his hands on it. His teachers would later reflect that Curtis Warren could easily have been an academic powerhouse and gone on to achieve amazing things had he applied himself to his studies. Alas, he chose a life of crime and the rest is history. And also, whilst I completely get what they're saying, he would never have been as rich as he ended up being. So I don't know whether he would have wanted to, but you're painting a picture of of quite a likeable character, quite a likeable criminal. And I can understand how he must have just constantly charmed and worked his way up and very cleverly assessed every situation he was ever in and then adjusted himself to, to kind of suit and... It is. We find this so often, don't we? We find so more often stupid criminals, but so often we find these really smart people where you think, if you'd have just done something good with these skills, you could have made a huge difference to the world for good. Because I, I kind of see it replicated in business. So you see some of those character traits of manipulation, charm, psychopathy. You see that they replicated so, in the they? business world. Anybody who's going to be a CEO should be a psychopath, apparently. Yeah. I think that's such an absolute generalisation, but I've definitely read articles where they've said mm. to be that high up in business, you need to be ruthless, and psychopaths can 
yeah get that far and um I, I talk about it at the end uh at the end of this but there is <laughs> there's uh Curtis Warren when he finds himself in prison a bit later in life which is no spoiler um he oh, spoiler, spoiler alert. alert he has uh he he gets caught having sex with one of the uh female prison officers and she gets into oh trouble gosh. for that obviously and i think mm-hmm. he's just the sort of guy that even behind bars he's like i'm going to get what I need and what I want and he can charm and manipulate the prison staff into giving him what he wants. Outside of his criminal activities, sport was a huge passion for Warren. In Liverpool, a love of football is essentially fed to kids in their mother's milk. It's understood that Warren grew up as a die-hard Liverpool fan and he made frequent trips to Anfield. At that time, Liverpool FC were dominating the football world. Warren joined a firm of football hooligans that would follow the team all over Europe. However, for Warren, the firm's trips to the big European cities like Paris, Rome and Amsterdam weren't just about football. He and his friends would visit expensive high street stores and steal as much designer gear as they could get their hands on before selling the items back on the streets of Toxteth for a bargain. And I kind of, again, I'm not advocating this because I saw a review recently that said... I can't remember who it was, but we were kind of like bigging up some big criminal and saying, wow, they're amazing, which we weren't. Um, but I kind of, the ingenuity of this, of going abroad to steal, I can just imagine him on, you know, on these um, designer avenues in Paris, stealing thousands of pounds worth of designer clothes from Gucci and Louis Vuitton to then sell back home, you know, at an absolute bargain price. And I think it's quite clever because, you know, he's, stealing these goods in another country and then doing a runner probably later that day out of that country so he's pretty safe isn't he i think it's a really kind of tricky line to to tread as well because you can admire someone's ingenuity and you can admire their smarts and what they do without thinking that what they're doing is good if that makes sense because i can say wow this guy's i do agree with you i think like that's such a sensible thing to do mm. you're not stealing from the market near you where everyone knows you already and they'll go tell your mum you're on a coach trip that's going to go there for a day yeah mixed in with a load of people so you're quite faceless because you're just english hooligans done simple that's what you look that's what you look like that's what people think you are probably not even thought of as the potential thief because they expect that you've just gone to the match and then you've gone home so it is quite a clever way to do it and to get to know other places as well mm. like that's already being quite worldly yeah for someone who grew up in poverty in liverpool yeah i think that's a fair assessment of it but it, and we're not saying that we admire him as in we think this is great what he does person who left us a review i just think you can admire something can't yeah you? i think so um And I think had he not done this repeatedly, he'd have gotten away with it. But as time went on, you know, this became a a real regular thing for him. So he would, yeah, constantly be be going back and forth, watching the football, part of this football hooligan gang that then did become known to the European police. And yeah, unfortunately, I suppose for him, many arrests did follow. And yeah, the European police soon became as familiar with Curtis Warren as the British police already were. There was me thinking he was reasonably faceless. He wasn't. So. He was in initially, yeah. but because it was just constant, it was constant. Yeah, I guess it's almost like the greed, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. In the short term, it was just a continuation of Curtis Warren's criminal behaviour. However, in the longer scheme of things, it was a hands-on education. 
Curtis Warren was making overseas connections, getting to know other criminals and gang members in a variety of countries on a personal level and learning the ways of international organised crime. So you're right, Bethan, it was worldly wise, really, to adopt this approach and to go out on the rob in all these different countries. And it did help him become more connected and understand how things worked abroad. Almost immediately after being released from his first stint in prison, Warren and an accomplice committed a violent armed robbery on a security van. A woman who foolishly tried to intervene suffered a fractured skull after one of the masked robbers struck her in the head with the butt of his shotgun. The police caught up with both men within days and even though Warren has always denied being the one who hit the woman, he was subsequently sentenced to another five years in prison. Well, I know you say foolishly and I do agree with you, but also what a brave woman. It is and it's instinctive, isn't it? No one knows how they're going to react if they see that. And really it was brave, um, but But it was quite foolish foolish. as well. Yeah, Yeah. I think think she'd probably admit that herself because she put herself in extreme danger and she could have paid with her life and it's just not worth it but you can't blame Mm -hmm. her because yeah we could do something uh like that in that situation or something worse you could have tried to grab the gun who knows after being released from prison for the second time now age 25 warren briefly turned his back on crime and tried to make an honest living he leveraged his reputation as a tough guy by working as a bouncer at a liverpool nightclub However, this position had the exact opposite effect on him, for it was here that he got to get a close look at how the drug trade worked. Warren quickly figured out that a bouncer had the power to let the dealers and the drugs in or out, and he soon realised that this could be a very good gateway into the narcotics business. A kind of snowball effect was set in motion. After some time, Warren was promoted to head bouncer and was put in charge of a small team of like-minded security staff. In this position, he could fully exploit the dealers and have a good hold on the drug trade within his own little territory. Once he'd gotten the lay of the land, he jumped in headlong and began actively selling and controlling the flow of drugs throughout Liverpool. This new venture was enormously profitable. As the following couple of years passed by, Warren became obscenely rich extremely quickly. He was making so much money that he literally didn't know what to do with it, so he began investing in real estate all over Europe to create the illusion that he was just a successful, savvy businessman and not one of the largest traffickers of cocaine in England. By the time he reached his 30s, Warren's legitimate property and business empire reportedly included properties in Wales, Spain, Gambia, a winery in Bulgaria, fucking petrol stations and an apartment block in Turkey, a yacht, a 16-room mansion in the Netherlands and literally dozens of rental properties in and around Liverpool. So, you know, yeah, this is just... this is. Although it's been bought with ill-gotten gains, essentially this is a legitimate property empire. I think it is fair to say these these are legitimate businesses, although I would say that he was probably using some of them to launder the money through. So like the petrol stations, yeah. But that is, um, and it's very varied as well. Very varied, very impressive. However, it seemed that no amount of money was enough to satiate the extent of Warren's ambition, and he was constantly expanding his drug empire into wider territory and making bigger and bigger deals. Before long, he was making calls to his contacts in Amsterdam. Curtis Warren didn't want to be just another coke dealer. He wanted to build his own cartel. And this is it, isn't it? Like I said before, the greed. Yeah. You can't just be happy with with something that a lot of people would be happy with. 
Yeah. Too, he just wants more and more and more. Too much is not enough for him. By the late 1980s, Warren had earned himself a reputation as one of the major players in the UK drug scene. He was now heavily involved in the importation and distribution of marijuana and cocaine. Eventually, Warren teamed up with another major English drug trafficker from Middlesbrough named Brian Charrington. To the regular person, Brian Charrington was nothing more than the owner of a small used car dealership in Middlesbrough. However, the business was merely a front to conceal the fact that Charrington was actually a major international drug smuggler. Warren and Charrington hit it off immediately, mainly because they both had equally grand ambitions for their drugs empire, and through their extensive conversations they immediately recognised the value of joining forces and working together. They essentially became business partners, sharing information, suppliers, connections and trade routes with one another. The alliance between the two men exponentially advanced their power and influence over the drugs trade in the UK, but both men wanted to branch out internationally. In September 91, the two men figured out that they could maximise their already astronomical revenue stream by cutting out the middlemen and buying their cocaine shipments directly from the source. Utilising as many connections as they had between them, they were eventually able to contact the big boys at the very top of the cocaine pyramid, and in September of that year, the two men flew to Venezuela to have a sit-down meeting with the higher-ups from the notorious Cali cartel. Now, for the unfamiliar, the Cali cartel was a fearsome, powerful and ruthless drug trafficking organisation based in Cali in Colombia, and they operated primarily during the late 20th century. Established in the 1970s, it became a formidable rival to Pablo Escobar and his more infamous Medellin cartel. Led by brothers Gilberto and Miguel Rodriguez, the Cali cartel was known for its sophisticated and business-like approach to drug trafficking. They employed money laundering schemes and bribery to influence political and law enforcement figures. In 1991, the Cali cartel were estimated by the US Drug Enforcement Administration to be earning north of US$7 billion a year in their United States operations alone. Curtis Warren and Brian Charrington became the first English traffickers in UK criminal history to be invited for a face-to-face meeting with the Cali cartel. It's rumoured that the meeting was held with the Rodriguez brothers personally in attendance. And can you, I mean, even for cocky Curtis Warren, who is charming and confident and arrogant, this would have been a massive deal to fly out to Venezuela and to have a face face-to-face meeting with these brothers who are notorious around the world and if they don't like the look of you or they're suspicious of you would think nothing about shooting you dead then and there so yeah I mean even for him he must have been absolutely terrified but you can just imagine the charm offensive he would have been on and it's incredible i mean the fact that potentially the rodriguez brothers were actually there is so big yeah to have had a face down with them yeah i mean that's not many people would get to do that and you're absolutely right he would have turned the charm on and he did impress so um yeah this was a huge meeting and just about every criminal narcotics gang leader on the planet would kill for such an opportunity but the cali cartel were known to be incredibly fussy about who they conducted business with They would simply ignore most attempts by outsiders to make connections with them, opting instead to only do business with a select few well-established and trusted sources. So just how did Curtis Warren, a streetwise thug from humble beginnings, manage to bag himself a sit-down with the heads of the cartel? 
Well, it's understood that the cartel bosses were impressed not only by Warren's intellect, but also by his apparently limitless ambitions. Curtis Warren made promises to the Cali cartel and then carefully outlined to them in minute detail how exactly he planned to deliver on said promises. The level of earning potential posed by Curtis Warren was huge, even by the cartel standards. And furthermore, the cartel bosses respected the way Warren conducted himself. He was cautious, humble, methodical, and he always kept a low profile. He didn't flaunt his wealth excessively, and he had several legitimate business fronts to keep up the appearance of a successful but legitimate entrepreneur. Warren was clearly no small-timer. As the cartel saw it, he had incredible potential. So I think ultimately from their point of view, you know, they trusted him straight away because of how he was able to tailor who he was to what they wanted him to be. Um, so he presents, he's like a chameleon. He presents to them how, how they want him to present. And I think greed probably gets the better of them because they, they think actually we can be even bigger. We can sees more of our stronghold on Europe in particular if we get this guy on board and we can make even more money and have even more power. So, yeah, he was very credible for them. Clearly, the meeting went very well for everyone involved because in early 1992, Curtis Warren and Brian Charrington were set to receive not just one, but two of the largest imported shipments of pure Colombian cocaine that the UK had ever seen up until that point in time. Curtis Warren devised an ingenious plan that the coke would be shipped in steel boxes with each brick of product sealed inside lead ingots. This wonderfully unique, never-before-seen smuggling method meant that the packages could not be detected in an X-ray, and opening up one of these ingots would require cutting through more than a foot of solid steel, which would require an unbelievable amount of time and effort. However, when the shipment landed in the docks in Liverpool, customs agents were already suspicious of it. It was under Curtis Warren's name, and the customs agents knew by now that he had a reputation as a criminal and as a major drug importer. After getting permission from the police, the agents took an ingot and cut it open using a circular saw. The ingot was made of thick and sturdy steel, and the process took several hours just to get into one of these crates. They had to stop several times to recharge the batteries and to take breaks as the work was just so intense. Nevertheless, the customs agents were confident that they would find contraband inside and that their efforts would pay off. However, when they finally broke into one single ingot, they found absolutely nothing. It was completely empty. Warren's genius had prevailed. He had anticipated such a move by the customs agents at the docks, so he'd intentionally instructed his men to leave the top few layers of ingots empty. He knew that they wouldn't waste their time cutting up every single ingot, owing to how long it took them just to open one. Indeed, the disheartened agents were moved to admit defeat, close up the container and allow Warren to take his shipment away in a lorry. Later that day, however, the agents at the dock received an alarming telephone call. Police in the Netherlands had received intelligence that there was cocaine hidden inside a container full of lead ingots. The agents immediately knew that they'd been fooled, but by now the shipment and Warren were long gone. However, all was not lost. According to the Dutch police, they also had intelligence that a second shipment was on its way. This time the police were waiting with a lot more men and a lot of heavy machinery. They weren't going to let this pass them by. When the shipment arrived, more than £500 million worth of pure, uncut cocaine was found. The largest ever shipment in UK criminal history at that time. I mean, half a billion pounds Oh my God, imagine knowing that you could stop that from 
coming into the country. Yeah, I mean, that is just that is just an obscene... There would have been distribution um, issues within the UK if you were a cocaine user at that time and you were looking to buy cocaine, you would have you would have noticed that there was disruption in the supply chain and that the quality had diminished or that you weren't even able to get your hands on it anymore because that amount of cocaine would have disrupted national supply chains across the whole of the UK. Curtis Warren, Brian Charrington and several of their associates were arrested and charged with drug trafficking. It seemed that Warren's criminal career was over for good now and that he was going away to prison for a very, very long time. Indeed, owing to such a monumentally sized shipment with his name all over it, he was looking at a life sentence for this. The evidence against Warren and Charrington was overwhelming, and the fates of both men looked sealed. However, at the very last moment, everything changed, and luck was on Curtis Warren's side. Two detectives. How on oh, earth my God. I mean, is could, anything going to yeah. change for him? No wonder there are consistently films and TV dramatizations made about the drugs cartels and drug traffickers because it is just so interesting and the fact now that something's going to change and it's in his favor I just can't you this is like one of those moments in the, in the show where you just think oh it's all over for him yeah what's gonna happen absolutely this is it this is half a billion pounds worth of cocaine being imported to the country with his name all over it and customs have seized it now. Um, he would have gone down in history for this because, as I said, that is, you know, you are talking tons and tons of cocaine there. It's a crazy amount. But yeah, he, he basically gets away with this. So two detectives working the case sensationally revealed that Curtis Warren's business partner, the man he trusted implicitly, Brian Charrington, was in fact a long-time police informer. The customs agents knew nothing of this informer and it turned out that Charrington, with the help of his informer status, had shipped a lot of drugs to Britain and the police had known about it all along. When it emerged that Charrington was a police informant, the case against the two men began to fall apart. So, you know, essentially, Curtis Warren is able to kind of say, well, you know, we've done this I kind of, I knew about this all along. I knew what was going on and I'm working with Charrington and he's an informant and he's the one that's arranged it all. It's nothing to do with me. And it's just a monumental fuck up that the, this guy has been outed as an informant. And you know what it's like with a, a bringing a criminal case to prosecution is really difficult. And if there's any hiccup in the process of how something's happened during the investigation then it makes the evidence inadmissible in court and therefore you're not really going to get anywhere so that's essentially what happened it's basically a technicality that he is largely getting away with this so when it emerged that Charrington was a police informant the case against the two men as I said began to fall apart secret documents later revealed that Charrington codenamed Enigma One had been in line to receive a hundred thousand pound reward for his role as an informant It was reported at the time that a chance to permanently end the lethal trade of cocaine between South America and Europe was deliberately sabotaged because of a failure of communication between customs and police. So the police really should have been working more closely with customs and they should have said, look, we've got an informant here and we need to let these drugs really kind of get into the country and and track Curtis Warren and see what he does so that we've got the evidence against him then. But it all just went tits up at this point. 
Allegations of police corruption prejudiced the case beyond belief and the judge was ultimately left with no other choice, so the case was dropped. Warren was released, acquitted of all charges and allowed to walk free. And legend has it that after he was set free, he turned to the customs agents in attendance at court and said to them, I'm off to spend my £87 million from the first shipment and you can't fucking touch me. Oh my God. Which they couldn't oh have. And it, you no. know, he's not plucked oh. that figure out of thin air. He's a he businessman. He knew what he was talking about, if this is a real quote. There's <gasps> 87 million quid there for him and he's got it. He's got his hands on it now. Warren was a free man with £87 million safely in the bank and the world was once again at his feet. However, the state of play had now changed. Back on the streets of Liverpool, things were getting dangerous. The drug industry had grown and expanded and with that growth came extreme widespread violence as the city's criminal gangs competed to control the most territory. In Warren's absence, a power vacuum had emerged in which several budding would-be crime lords competed to take his place as top dog. Several organised crime figures were found in holes, burned alive, riddled with bullets, or savagely chopped up by machetes. So, you know, the whole violence amongst rival gangs was really escalating here, and we don't know what part Warren played in in this in terms of him re-establishing himself as top dog in that territory, but, you know, maybe he was responsible for a lot of that violence. Warren wasn't stupid. He knew full well that he was one of, if not the most prolific dealer in the UK. He had enemies, some of which were masquerading as his friends, and he knew that he would be a high-value target for any gang member, ambitious enough to try and usurp him from power and steal his empire from under him. Furthermore, he anticipated an even greater threat from the UK police, who would surely come after him with everything they had after their first effort ended in humiliation with the collapsed trial. In the UK, he was a sitting duck whose days were numbered. With all this in mind, Warren decided that it was a smart idea to flee the UK and to set up shop in a safer country. And so it came to pass that in 1995, Warren moved his entire operation to Holland. True to his belief in always keeping a low profile, Warren took to the sticks. Whereas most drug traffickers would choose Amsterdam or Rotterdam as a good place to set up base, Warren decided the quiet town of Sassenheim would be perfect. He moved into a very nice villa from where he conducted his business and made his deals. By this time, Curtis Warren was a very, very rich and powerful man. He still owned hundreds of houses, mansions and office blocks in Britain. He owned casinos in Spain, discos in Turkey, that vineyard in Bulgaria and his villa in Sassenheim. The rest of his money was stashed away in several offshore bank accounts, far out of reach of the UK police. At this stage, Warren could have easily just stopped. He had already won the game. He could have retired to some tropical island somewhere and lived the rest of his life as a king. But for some reason, he didn't. For reasons known only to himself, he kept on going, setting up more and more drug deals and making more and more money. Perhaps it was the rush he got from the smuggling, or maybe his thirst for money and power was just too great to ever be fully satiated. Only Curtis Warren himself knows the truth. In the quiet town of Sassenheim, Warren felt safe from his enemies and relatively hidden from the British police. From his new Dutch home, he enjoyed a luxurious lifestyle. I don't know why I said luxurious. Uh, We can add that to the list of words I can't pronounce and made regular calls to his friends and business connections back home in England. 
business was once again booming. However, what Curtis didn't know at the time was that the Dutch police were already listening in and had him under constant surveillance. They were familiar with the name Curtis Warren because they knew already that he had several connections in Holland that made up a large part of his smuggling network. They had tapped his phone and were listening to his every word. Not that that mattered though. Warren was a lot more cautious and intelligent than your average drugs trafficker. He hated paper trails and made a big point of never leaving behind clues that could see him caged. To add an additional layer of security to his operations, he almost always talked in code. He never named any of his friends by their real names. He instead insisted on using childhood nicknames. Some of these included Macker and Tacker, The Egg on Legs, Twit and Twat. The Egg on Legs. The Egg on Legs. (laughs) I love that one. Twit and Twat, which was my personal favourite and which I'm now going to use to describe two people I don't like. I think that's us. That's us. That's us. I'll be Twat, you can be Twit. Um, Amazing. The Werewolf and the Vampire. That would probably be better for us. Badger, Boo and loads of others. Um, So when I said they were childish nicknames, they really were. Um, So yeah, The Egg on Legs and Twit and Twat. I fucking love those. When it came to things like PIN codes, contact phone numbers and bank account details, Warren never ever wrote any of these things down on paper. He relied solely on his extraordinary photographic memory and he stored all of these potentially incriminating details safely inside the unbreakable vault of his own mind. He was a genius really in in doing that. Warren's insane intelligence proved to be a constant source of frustration to the Dutch police, who, try as they might, struggled to get any kind of leverage on their target. Nevertheless, they remained steadfast and continued their surveillance operation, hoping to catch Warren red-handed. The way they saw things, Warren was a highly intelligent individual, but he was still only human, and humans make mistakes. In the end, however, they simply grew tired of waiting for him to slip up and made the decision to move in anyway. They convinced a Dutch judge that they had enough probable cause to suspect that Curtis Warren could only be in the Netherlands to make another huge drug deal, and a warrant to search his property was issued. As it so happened, the Dutch police's timing could not have been better. Warren's new shipment plan was already set in place. This time the cocaine from Venezuela would be shipped to Bulgaria, where it would be cooked into liquid and held in suspension inside bottles of wine, and from there it would be shipped to Holland and then on to Liverpool to be sold. How ingenious is that? It's it's being cooked up and kind of held in suspended animation in these bottles of wine and then it and would you just be cooked down you just think it was bottles of wine of course you would it would then yeah. be cooked down in another location and shipped to holland and then on to liverpool and and would make its way onto the streets and it would have been fantastic quality because it's coming directly from the source there's no middlemen here who are cutting it with agents to increase their own profit margins While Warren waited for his cocaine shipment from Venezuela to arrive, he was already thinking where to stash his new heap of money. However, this time the Dutch police were watching. Unlike the British police, they were not about to make any dumb mistakes that would see their suspect walk free. They meant business. On the 24th of October in 1996, the shipment from Bulgaria arrived in Holland. That same night, Dutch SWAT units raided Warren's home to arrest him. The unit stormed the property with stun grenades and caught Curtis totally by surprise as he slept. He was placed under arrest as the cops ransacked his house room by room. 
Several other Dutch members of Curtis's organisation were arrested that same night. At their homes, they found three guns, ammo, hand grenades, crates with CS gas canisters, one and a half thousand kilograms of heroin. That's a huge amount. 50 kilograms of XTC, which I'm guessing is like ecstasy and what it was kind of known as then. And also 600,000 US dollars in cash. So... Yeah, you know, it wasn't just cocaine, it was heroin, it was other drugs, you know, huge amounts of money that needs to be laundered and hand grenades and crates and crates of CS gas canisters. These guys meant business. The entire shipment of cocaine was also seized, which turned out to be worth more than £125 million. Curtis Warren was screwed and he knew it. The only upside now was that he'd been arrested in Holland, a country that is known for its notably relaxed drugs laws, and that meant that right away things looked a little bit brighter for him. At the subsequent drugs trial in Amsterdam, Curtis Warren was charged with importing 800 kilograms of cocaine into Holland and planning to ship it to the UK. The following year, on the 19th of July 1997, Curtis Warren was found guilty and sentenced to 12 years in prison. Had he been arrested in the UK for that amount of cocaine, he'd have been given 25 years at least. Had it been the US, he'd have probably been looking at life without parole. Wow, that is a huge difference, isn't it? It's a massive difference, yeah. I mean, Must have been one of the reasons why he decided to settle in Holland then as well. So. He wouldn't have chosen that just because he had connections. It would have been part of it. I think it must have been. It was a calculated move. He's a clever guy. He knows yeah. what he's doing. Immediately after his sentencing, Dutch and British authorities began working together to hunt down and seize Curtis Warren's mountains of riches, which was estimated at that point to be far north of £125 million. This, like everything else related to the pursuit of Curtis Warren, turned out to be an infuriatingly difficult task. What little money of his they could trace was legitimate, laundered and therefore could not be legally confiscated. The drug money they were after was spread around all across the globe, from offshore bank accounts in Switzerland to safety deposit boxes in Central America. Some of it was even buried in some random backyard in Toxteth. All of the necessary locations and account numbers were, as usual, safely stored inside Curtis's powerfully photographic memory. Nothing was ever written down on paper, which for the police meant that it was hidden and locked away permanently, and only Curtis Warren himself had access to it, and he wasn't planning on telling them anything regarding the whereabouts of that nest egg. Meanwhile, Curtis Warren languished quietly in a cushy Dutch prison. He mainly kept himself to himself and whiled away the hours by reading books and planning his future drug business endeavours after his release. He still had big ambitions, and now he had plenty of time to make big plans. However, after serving just over two years of relatively quiet jail time, Curtis Warren yet again found himself in serious trouble. One afternoon in September of 1999, as Warren was quietly walking around the prison yard, a Turkish inmate named Kemal Guklu, who was serving life for murder, started yelling abuse at him. After a tempered exchange of insults, Guklu walked towards Curtis and tried to punch him in the face. Curtis evaded the punch and pushed Guklu to the floor. Guklu got up and tried to punch Curtis again, but Curtis quickly threw him back down to the ground, only this time he kicked him four times in the head, knocking him unconscious. Kemal Guklu never regained consciousness and died a few hours later, having suffered a fatal bleed to the brain. Curtis Warren was charged with his murder and found himself once again on trial in February 2001. 
Warren argued that he'd acted in self-defence. Whilst the judge accepted the self-defence argument, he also felt that he had used excessive violence in dealing with the threat caused by Guklu and subsequently sentenced Warren to an additional four years in prison for manslaughter. I have to agree on that. I have never been in prison and I don't know what it's like and I, I, a part of me kind of thinks you want to just put that person down and you don't want them to get back up again because you don't know what's going to happen next yeah. and what weapon might they pull because it's prison. So I kind of get it, but equally kicking someone te- four times in the head and rendering them unconscious wasn't necessary at all. If he's down, you could have fled. So Yeah, he could have run, but then you don't know how that looks in prison. If you run away from someone, you're seen as a coward and a pussy. True, p- potentially. I don't think they'd say it like that, but potentially. Would you say that to someone like Curtis Warren? I would. I would if I was in prison. I'd call him a potential pussy. Okay. With the authorisation of the Dutch legal system, the police who were still looking for Curtis Warren's wealth told him that he had to pay them 26 million guilders, which is 14 million US dollars, or face an additional five years in prison. After some legal back and forth, an agreement was struck. Warren would pay 15 million guilders, or 8 million US dollars, and not face an additional five-year term. Dutch authorities agreed and took the money. So he could get his hands on 8 million US dollars pretty quickly and essentially, you know, buy himself out of an additional five years. A couple of years later, in February 2005, the Dutch police took another swipe at Warren and charged him with running an international drug smuggling cartel from within his Dutch prison cell. After a short and messy trial, he was found guilty, but successfully appealed and had that particular conviction overturned. He was then released from prison two years later in June 2007. So although um, he was acquitted um, from from those charges, I feel like he probably was doing that. He probably was still, he probably smuggled a mobile phone into prison and was running that cartel from inside, I would have thought. Oh yeah, you imagine he He can't help himself, yeah. Upon his release, he was escorted by Dutch police to a ferry terminal and promptly kicked out of the country on a permanent basis. He sailed back to Liverpool and vowed to go straight, insisting to everyone he met that he just wanted to get on with his life in a positive way. Of course, nobody was buying it, least of all the police. The UK's Serious Organised Crime Agency, or Soccer, discreetly followed Warren's every move as part of a lifetime offender management programme under the code name Operation Floss. And I thought this was interesting because this is so sometimes when someone's released from prison on license, it's quite transparent that they've got to report to the probation service, maybe once a week, they've got to have their internet history monitored, their devices registered like electrical devices, they can't go to certain areas, Mm -hmm. they can't see certain people, all of that. So this is similar, but this is not transparent. Curtis Warren, in theory, wouldn't have been aware of this. This is a lifetime offender management programme. He's not privy to this. So, you know, that's interesting to know that there are criminals in this country right now that soccer are discreetly monitoring and will be for their entire lives. And then, less than three weeks after being released from jail, and to the utter surprise of absolutely nobody at all, Soccer called the police in Jersey, a self-governing dependency of the UK situated in the Channel Islands, to inform them that Curtis Warren had arrived at Manchester Airport and paid cash for a plane ticket to their island. 
A covert police unit began following Warren the moment he landed on Jersey soil when they observed him with a known Liverpool-born criminal associate and now Jersey resident named Taffin Carter. The two men drove around in Carter's VW Golf to various locations as if scouting for potential smuggling spots. At that time, drugs on the streets of Jersey were more than three times the street price compared to mainland UK or Western Europe. Never one to miss an opportunity, it made complete and utter sense that Warren was back to his old ways and was planning his next big deal to basically infiltrate Jersey with drugs because he knows he's going to make three times as much money there. And can you imagine on an island, a relatively small island, the the chaos that would cause, just flooding it with drugs, it would become an epidemic there, really. Mm. Warren returned to the mainland after a few days of scouting. Jersey police quickly created Operation Koala, a special task force that was dedicated to monitoring and bugging various locations of interest in the Warren investigation, including several phone boxes and the home of Taffin Carter. Intercepted phone calls from Carter's property revealed that a friend of Warren named John Welsh was planning a trip to Amsterdam to meet with a known associate of Warren's from Morocco. Morocco is, and always has been, the hashish smuggling capital of the world. For the task force, the dots were joining up nicely. The police knew that Curtis Warren had never been one for small measures. He probably wasn't intending on selling a small quantity of hashish to college students to make a few bob. In all likelihood, he was planning to flood the island of Jersey with high-grade Moroccan hash and to make a small fortune there. However, even though they had an advantage over Warren relatively early on, the police once again very nearly found a way to mess everything up. Jersey police wanted to bug John Welsh's hire car ahead of his arrival in Europe, but were refused permission by French and Belgian police, saying it was a breach of the European Convention of Human Rights. However, for reasons unknown, the Jersey police controversially decided to breach EU law by going ahead and bugging the car anyway, which allowed them, along with the Dutch police, soccer and Interpol, to monitor the car's movements. Oh my god, but then anything they find could be inadmissible... I get it, I get why they're doing it, but... Oh. I kind of think they half know what they're doing here. In subsequent operations, the serious organised crime agency continued to keep an eye on Warren in Liverpool, while Dutch police monitored his contact in Amsterdam and coordinated information from various bugged phone boxes to correlate who was speaking to whom. The operation was sophisticated, widespread and organised. It was later revealed that Warren had three UK mobile phones and one Jersey mobile phone and had made a total of 1,587 telephone calls in three weeks from these devices. That's more than 500 calls a week. That's like 80 calls a day. That's mad, isn't it? That's, you know, to run this business. That's too much. It's crazy. Too many. Yeah. So if you ever see any, anybody constantly on the phone, they're possibly a drug dealer. Probably are, and he was also using several phone boxes all across the northwest of England and North Wales too. And many of these calls were made to his hashish smuggling contact in Morocco. Further intercepted calls made from wiretapped phones soon revealed to police the full extent of Warren's newest scheme. It turned out that for all of his talk about starting a new and going legitimate, Curtis Cocky Warren, the notorious drugs trafficker once dubbed Britain's Pablo Escobar by the media, was indeed keen to get back to building his drugs empire as soon as possible. While serving time in the Netherlands' highest security prison, he'd been cooking up what he described as just a little starter, a plot to smuggle more than a million pounds of high-grade Moroccan hash into the Channel Islands. 
His plan was to buy 180 kilograms of the drug from the Moroccans via one of his contacts in Amsterdam, where it would then be taken to an isolated stretch of coast in Normandy in France. From there, it was to be hidden in a small boat and shipped overnight to Jersey, before being smuggled ashore under the cover of the imposing cliffs near St Catherine's Breakwater. As a ringleader of the plot, Warren stood to take the lion's share of the profits. And with the street value of cannabis in Jersey being that much more expensive, he expected a decent payday. But what Warren didn't know was that detectives were tracking his gang's every move. The police now had more than enough probable cause to swoop in and arrest Warren once again before his product had even set sail for the Jersey coast. In 2007, Warren was arrested at his home in Liverpool for conspiracy to smuggle drugs after a lengthy joint investigation involving Jersey police, Merseyside police, soccer and law enforcement from Belgium, France and the Netherlands. Curtis Warren pleaded not guilty, even in the face of damning and overwhelming evidence against him. The trial dragged on for two years, thanks in no small part to the actions of the Jersey police and the subsequent argument over the legality of the information obtained by the bugging of Welsh's car, and that being in contravention of human rights. After an agreement was made in court that there was sufficient evidence from other sources to substantiate the case, Jersey police offered him a deal for pleading guilty, so an eight-year jail term and no confiscation of assets. But to everybody's shock, Warren rejected that deal. And that was a great deal, to be fair. That's an incredible deal. It really is. And again, they're just kind of desperate. We just need to get him inside for anything. And maybe their take on it was, whilst he's inside, we can then start building a case uh, and gathering evidence for other operations that he's orchestrated and put him away for a longer time. The court heard that in the end, no drugs had been imported to Jersey by Warren and his gang as the Jersey contacts had failed to come up with the money. Nevertheless, Curtis Warren was found guilty on the 7th of October in 2009 for conspiracy to smuggle cannabis. He was sentenced to 13 years imprisonment for his part in the plot because he refused that plea deal. After initially serving his sentence in HMP Full Sutton, near York, which is a horrific prison, he was moved to another horrific prison, HMP Belmarsh. On two occasions, he has unsuccessfully attempted to appeal his conviction. In November 2013, Warren was ordered by the Home Office to pay a £198 million confiscation order or face another 10 years in jail. I mean, nearly £200 million. You know, even if he did have that money... I don't think it would have been that easy for him to get his hands on it. It's in loads of different bank accounts in loads of different countries. Yeah, it's just not as easy as it is of going in and doing a transfer. On the 27th of March in 2014, it was reported that Warren had refused to hand over that money and so opted instead to remain in prison for those additional years. From that point, Curtis Warren languished quietly in prison and made no noise. And now here we go to 2020 and a female prison officer was caught having sex with him in his cell and she was jailed for two years. And I I did find that sort of comical, really, because I can just imagine him, you know, trying it on, trying that charm on and having his way, really, and her being like in love with him. And it is like, obviously, what she's done is still wrong and... I get that. But yeah, you could imagine that she would have been taken advantage of a little bit. Oh, yeah. By that charm, that charm offensive, because 
that doesn't happen every day because they know that that's their job and they know that they wouldn't want to do that but then you never know he might have actually genuinely been really like they might have had something no, there, I don't know I don't think so do you so. not think so no I think <laughs> he's not he just... like exactly the most handsome or anything either so he no. must just be very charming I think I think it was a charm prevailed there and I think that female prison officer knew what she was doing although she was a victim of manipulation on his part and charm I think he he's someone that can almost just put you under a spell. Curtis Warren was released from HMP Whitemore in November 2022 after serving a total of 14 years. He currently resides in Liverpool. The exact location of his missing millions is known only to Curtis Warren himself. There's no doubt whatsoever that the police will be watching his every move and hoping that Warren will lead them to it. So it will be exceptionally difficult for him to retrieve it undetected. Oh my God, yeah, that's a good point because, you know, he knows where this all is. You can't really go and get any of it because the second he goes to cash in his money and bring it back to the UK, they're going to pounce on him. Yeah. And and can't, I, I can't imagine he's going to be able to leave the UK and go live somewhere where he's got his money stashed. He's probably not allowed to travel out of the country now um, as part of the conditions of his release. And even if he managed to get his hands on that money, the police are, are looking at him, I guess. And if he's driving around Toxteth in a, you know, 250 grand Rolls Royce Phantom, then I think that's going to ring alarm bells. So, you know, he's got to do anything he can to evade any further suspicion. So maybe he has used it as an opportunity to go straight because it's going to be exceptionally difficult for him to retrieve that money or to continue with his criminal empire. So I mean, maybe... It sounds like he, he did want to if, uh, at least uh, uh, twice yeah. in his life, a few times. Maybe this will be like the pressure that he just has to now. And he's older now and he's probably just thinking, you know, I've, I've lived this amazing life and don't criticise me for saying that because it's an amazing life. It's a full life that he has led, travelling the world and dealing with multi-million pound uh, business deals and dealing with all these, you know, criminals that are really high profile. He'd have a story to tell and... Um, he's probably just thinking, yeah, maybe it's time to just retire and chill out a bit. So hopefully he's he'd be gone just straight. over sixty now, so he yeah. can have a good, you know, few more decades, just you know, living off the, living off those stories, making a living from people who admire him. Yeah, not maybe having to go get and get that because he's never going to have to pay for a meal in a restaurant, is he? Surely, if he knows the right people and stuff. No. No. And look at Linda Calvey. She's a great example of somebody who, you know, did her time, served her sentence, came out and went straight and, you know, does have a fascinating story to tell and holds her hands up that she absolutely did wrong. But not nevertheless, it's an interesting story to tell and he could do that. So who knows? Maybe that's what he's got planned. He's only been out of prison for just over a year. He's probably still adjusting to to life outside. So that is the story of Curtis Warren, the life and crimes of, yeah, probably the most notorious drugs kingpin this country has ever seen, I would say. Um, let us know your thoughts in all the usual ways. You can contact us on X. No, we're not on that. You can contact us on Instagram, <laughs> Facebook and on Patreon as well. If you're And if Patreon you listen supporter. on Spotify, you can comment on Spotify if you listen there. I didn't know they could do that. I thought they could yeah, just review. That's can. interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and yeah, we will uh, see you next week for another episode. So we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.